Well, we're going through the book of Luke so that we can see Jesus and what he did here on this earth. But there's another reason that we're going through the book of Luke instead of digging into some kind of man-made documentary series titled, In Search of the Real Jesus. Because we want to let Jesus himself tell us why he did what he did. Because I hope you realize it's the why behind the what that begins to clarify who he really is and what he came to do. Listen to me. Very few people are categorically opposed to any concept of Jesus. We would just like to fill in the blanks ourselves on what kind of Jesus we want him to be. And that's been a problem from the very beginning. Not, is there a Jesus? But what did he come to do? And so that's what we want to clarify today. Go with me to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 7. Luke chapter 9, verse 7. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed. Because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John, I beheaded. But who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. On their return, Jesus has sent out the disciples into other towns to preach about the kingdom. The kingdom has arrived. On their return, the apostles told Jesus all they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him. And he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away. And the twelve came to Jesus and said, Send the crowd away into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But Jesus said to them, you give them something to eat. They said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we're going to buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, Jesus looked up to heaven, said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, 12 baskets of broken pieces. Now, I hope you saw in the opening verses of what I just read, this section I just read, how Jesus captures the attention. Jesus captures the attention of people from every level of power, position, and possessions here in this world. He captures the attention of every level here in this world. It's not just a certain segment or slice of humanity that has been intrigued by Jesus, every level. Larry King, who died earlier this year, was a television and radio host for 64 years. And in those 64 years, he hosted 50,000 interviews with some of the most famous and sought after people in our world. 
But when asked, who more than anyone else would you love to interview? He said, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Oh, it's not just one slice of humanity that is intrigued and stirred by the person and power of Jesus. Notice in verse 7 again. Look at it. Herod, the Tetrarch. This is the son of Herod the Great who had tried to kill Jesus when he was a baby. But now three decades later, three decades later, oh my goodness, news of Jesus is everywhere. People are talking about Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. But there's massive confusion as to who he is and what he came to do. Guess what? 2,000 years later, there is no less confusion than there was back then. Because of jaded documentaries, dishonest professors, and shoddily researched books like Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code. But the fact that these books sell millions testifies to the hunger, hunger that people still have to know more about Jesus. Who is he? So number one, you might be confused. You might be confused about who Jesus really is. If so, you're not the first. You're not the first. Look at what's going on in verse 7. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening. Lots has been happening. Jesus turned water to wine. Jesus opened blind eyes. Jesus healed lame legs. Jesus removed leprosy. All that is happening. And he was perplexed. Perplexed. That Greek word for perplexed means to be confused to the point of despair. Confused to the point of despair. Because just like today, people were promoting radical, strong opinions that were radically different as to who he really was. So that a tsunami of confusion was swirling around Jesus. And modern scholarship today has only muddied the waters Muddied the waters further. You can peruse a list of not just what your next door neighbor thinks or your cousin or Uncle Freddy thinks at Christmas. There's plenty of that. But you can peruse a list of academic books, academic books, and find arguments for Jesus as a political revolutionary, Jesus as a magician that married Mary Magdalene, and Jesus as a hallucinogenic leader of a sacred mushroom cult. And more. It just doesn't end. It doesn't end. Serious academic books promoting radically different arguments as to who he was and what he did. But listen to me. If you would listen to Jesus himself, you wouldn't have to go down any of those crazy paths. Jesus was not confused as to who he was and what he came to do. Not at all. But now if you are confused... Some really good news. Number two. Number two, your confusion about him does not wipe out his compassion for you. Oh, that is so unlike anything else in this world. Most people, until you know who I am and you get it right, I'm not going to do anything for you. Do you know who I am? Do you know who I am? Your confusion about Jesus does not wipe out his compassion for you. In other words, clarity on Jesus is not the prerequisite for care and concern 
from Jesus. Wow. Just let that sink in for a minute. You don't have to know who he is for him to care about who you are and where you are right now. He knows, he cares, he sees you. He knows, he cares, he sees you. In other words, you don't have to get it right before Jesus actually cares for you. But don't hear what I'm not saying. He would love for you to get it right as to who he is because that will change your life now and change your future forevermore. Where you're headed next, where you're headed now and next, now and next are radically changed when you understand who he is and what he actually came to do. But you don't have to get it right. Even before you get it right as to who he is, he cares for you, is providing for you in ways that you don't even recognize probably or give gratitude for. Every good thing comes down from above. Every good thing comes from above. You got anything good happening in your life? He is the ultimate source and provider of it. It's not, well, I just work harder than everybody. I did that. I did that. I did that. Anything good, anything good going on in your life, he's the ultimate source. You think about it. As human beings, we would not operate this way. He doesn't go around like, okay, Christian yard, non-Christian yard, rain on that yard, lush, burn it up. Burn it up. Jobs for Christians, no job for you. Oh my goodness, anything good coming into your life. He's the ultimate source. You don't have to know who he is before he knows who you are and cares for you and is providing in ways that you probably don't recognize or even express gratitude for. You see, this crowd of 5,000 people was much more likely 20,000 people. Because they didn't count women and children back in that day. And so even though he knows untold numbers, thousands of these people, even though he knows thousands of these people do not know who he is, do not care who he is, but just want the free lunch, he still provides. Look at verse 17 again, Luke chapter 9. And they, how many? All ate. And were what? Satisfied. Satisfied. They all ate and were satisfied. And Mark chapter 6 just makes this all the more amazing. When you understand the context of this miracle, which by the way, this is the only miracle that's recorded in all four gospels beside the resurrection. That tells you there must be something significant going on here. There must be something really critical to who Jesus is and what he came to do if Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all include this in their record. And so when you reach over to each one of them and pull it together, you get a much more clarity on what was going on. In Mark chapter 6, this miracle is all the more amazing because we learn in Mark chapter 6, Jesus was actually exhausted, exhausted, and had pulled away to be away from people and to catch his breath. Mark chapter 6 says there was so much going on, like people just coming and going, that they didn't even have time to eat. So he had pulled away. That's why Bethsaida 
was out in the middle of nowhere. It was a desolate place. No big cities, no marketplaces. He didn't go there to minister. He went there for a spiritual retreat to just pull back and catch his breath. You say, but I thought he was God. Yes, fully God and fully man. That's why you find in the Gospels, he sat down at the well outside of Samaria while the disciples went to look for food. You know why? He was exhausted. That's why we've already had Jesus asleep on a cushion in a boat during a storm. Not because he doesn't care. He's exhausted. Some of you have husbands, you're like, he can sleep through anything. Yes, when you're exhausted, he was exhausted. And now we've got him saying to the disciples, oh, let's pull away to a desolate place to be refreshed. I don't, and so how's he gonna respond? Because everyone was so stirred by what he was doing that they learned where he was headed and they ran ahead and they were there when he and his disciples arrived. Oh my goodness, I don't know about you. I, so many of you think I'm an extrovert. I'm actually not. I'm energetic. I'm an energetic introvert. So I regularly hit points where I say to Vicki, I don't care who asks us to do whatever. The answer is no. A giant no. I can't. I'll just weep. I'll just begin to cry in front of them. I'm tapped out. I'm peopled out. I'm physically and emotionally exhausted. I just need to sit with my head slightly cocked and drool hanging out of my mouth while the Bengals beat somebody. I just need to be alone. I need to stare at a tree. I just need to collect my thoughts. I love being alone. I really do. I'm okay. People say to me, oh, when do you go to the gym? I'll work out with you. Please don't. I want to work out all by myself. Like, when do you, when do you, I don't want a vacation with you. I don't want to do the gym with you. I love you. I pray for you. And then I want to be alone. Even in our own marriage, like, she has a TV upstairs where she's trying to figure out who killed somebody. It's always the same thing. I'm downstairs watching a thriller. I'm like, hey, are you okay, baby? Yep, good. You do your thing. Uh, let me know if you need me. I have a phone. Call me. <laughs> it's like, alone doesn't bother me. I know there's some extroverts like, oh, give me some people. I'm so refreshed by people. I'm so not. <laughs> and Jesus was tapped out. So how is he going to respond? You know what it's like when you actually, you thought you were going to get what you wanted and you'd made plans to get what you want and all of a sudden it doesn't work out? Mark chapter 6, verse 34 tells us, he hits the shore. Imagine that. And he doesn't say, oh, people, no. And he doesn't say to the row, back it up, back it up, go, row hard. Can you row in reverse? I want to see people become specks on the shoreline, smaller and smaller and smaller. Go, I can't do it. I can't do it again. Nope. Wow. He ministers in a time of sheer human exhaustion. Mark chapter 6, verse 34 says, when he went ashore and saw the crowd, He had, say it, compassion on them. Why? Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them, but he didn't just teach them. He met a real need. He fed them. And and it's actually, you know, this is one of those situations where you'd be tempted to think, this is your fault. 
There shouldn't be 20,000 people here. There's no city, there's no market, there's no food. I came here for a spiritual retreat. The reason this is now problematic is because of what you did. Doesn't do that. It's a desolate place. And yet he has compassion on them in a practical way. I'm not just gonna teach them. Somebody needs to feed them. It's a long way back to a city. Somebody needs to feed them. He fed them despite the fact that he knew thousands of them were simply thrill seekers chasing after him for all the wrong reasons. He fed them and took care of them and met a real need regardless of what they believed about him. But now, here's where you have to be careful. Because you might get excited and say, oh, he's that kind of shepherd? He's that, he has that kind of compassion? Great. Here's where you have to be careful because you might get excited about Jesus and say, great, I'll just let him know what I think I need next if it's his job to do what I want when I want it. And if you head down that path, I said very few people are categorically opposed to Jesus, you guys. It's that they want to fill in the blanks on his job description and tell him what to do. Tell him what to do. You could get excited about Jesus, but for all the wrong reasons. And if you head down that path, you won't be the first, and you won't be the last, get this, to be totally disillusioned when he absolutely refuses to buy into your agenda for what you think he should do in your life. Jesus will not let us redefine him or redefine his mission. He was not confused He stayed on mission. He stayed on mission. He did it then, and he's still doing it now. He's on mission. He knows who he is and what he really came to do. He knows who he is and what he really wants to do in your life right now in 2021. But as human beings, we relentlessly try to redefine him and tell him what to do. Number three, Jesus never gives in to our short-sighted desires. He never gives in to our shirt. He's happy to meet some immediately earthly desires like hunger and other concerns. But he never wants us to stop there and stay there and say, oh my goodness, you can do that? You can do that? And to see this, you've got to go to John's gospel. So Mark's gospel is where we really learn that he was wanting to pull away and yet he showed compassion. John's gospel is where we really see the heart of men and women and what we try to do with Jesus. Because it's in John's gospel that he actually tells us that people, when they saw that he could feed 20,000 people with two fish and three loaves, they rose up and tried to take him by force and make him king. Yeah. See, here's what you need to realize, you guys. Human beings do not mind having an all-powerful king to rule over them. As long as they can tell that king what to do with all that power and when to do it. You could do this and you could do it now. You could do this and you could do it now. Go to John chapter 6 and look at what I'm talking about in verse 14. John chapter 6 verse 14. John 6 verse 14. When the people saw the sign that he had done, taking two fish and three loaves and feeding 20,000 people and having leftovers all over the ground, 
When they saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world, perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. He withdrew again to the mountain by himself. As you read further in John chapter 6, you see, you'll see John mention sign, sign, sign all through his gospel. The first sign was in John 2 when he took the water and turned it into really good wine. That was the first sign. Here's another sign. He takes this little bit of food and multiplies it to feed 20,000 people. Here's what you need to understand. All that he did that was miraculous, you guys, was always intended to be a sign that pointed to something greater, that took you further, that took you somewhere more important, not that you would stay there. You think about how we use signs today. Like for 34 years, we've traveled all the way to South Georgia to see her parents for two weeks in the summer. And there's certain signs that would excite me. You know how as you're traveling, it's like you see that and you're like, oh, yeah, I see that every year. There's this, there's this water tower that has a peach on top of it. Georgia's all about it. And there's a big billboard that says, Albany, the good life city. And I get excited when I see those. But we don't swerve the van to the side of the road, and I don't hug the base of that water tower. Ah! It's pointing to something else. It's taking us somewhere else. Because here's the problem with miracles, you guys, and we need Christians to get a hold of this. We got Christians today that are fond of saying, oh, I wish if we could just get back to the book of Acts, if we could just have Jesus here doing miracles. You do realize that miracles, signs, that meet earthly, immediate appetites only cause human beings to say, do it again. You realize that? Dude, think about little kids. I have five kids. Now I have one grandchild that I'm looking forward to this all over again. Think about when they do what they do. They want to jump to you. They're at the top of the stairs. You're at the bottom. They jump. You catch them. You set them back down and they say, thank you, Father. I'm so satisfied. That was amazing. I'm going to think about that for days. What do they say? Immediately you put them down and they say, say it louder. Do it again. Do they even reach a point where they say, that's enough, really. I can't jump again. (laughs) No, who has to end this? We do. I can't do it again. I can't do it again. I can't. That's our heart with miracles and earthly appetite. There is no end to earthly appetites. It's just do it again. Do it again. Because if you keep reading in John, you'll actually see that they have the nerve. This is one day after he's fed 20,000 people. They have the nerve to say to him, what sign do you show us that we might believe? Are you kidding me? They're the same crowd that saw it all happen. And they don't say, we don't need to see anything else. You must be the Messiah. You must be the promised one. You Nope, they say, what sign? And then they, here's what they have the nerve to do. If you read John 6, you'll see they say, Moses in the wilderness fed us with manna. Do you realize what they're doing? He just fed them with bread. And they're saying, in the Old Testament, Moses fed us every day. It fell every day. You did it once. That's the human heart. And he didn't do it again. He didn't say, well, let me do it again, and then I know you'll be satisfied. No, he knows they won't. They won't. It was a sign. So he's like, the sign, they missed it. And they just wanted to make, you say, doesn't he know he's going to be king? Doesn't he know the Old Testament prophesies that he's going to be king, that he's going to have a kingdom? He knows all that, you guys. They wanted him to be the bread king. 
He's not interested in being the bread king. He came to do something greater. He starts with earthly appetites, and then he wants to make you aware of a greater hunger and a greater longing that is within every human being created in the image of God. He wants to awaken and stir you to something that matters more, and he wants to solve your biggest problem, which is not where's bread coming from next, which is not any earthly problem. It's our spiritual alienation from our creator God that can only be resolved and reconciled through Jesus Christ. He doesn't want to be the bread king, so he pulled away because he knew that this mad rush of enthusiasm was not for who he really is or what he actually came to do. You realize people can have great enthusiasm for Jesus, but for all the wrong reasons? Why? Even like in in John... In John, he says two times they were seeking Jesus. They were seeking Jesus. Very often we talk about seekers today. Oh, they're seeking. They're seeking. Great. That's better than having no desire or interest. But you realize people can seek with wrong motives. And they can already have an agenda of what they're looking for someone to do. And Jesus will not let you redefine his job description. But people are pretty relentless When they see the potential for power to do what they want in this life, they can be quite tenacious in the pursuit of it. Pick it up in John 6.24. John 6.24, they don't let up, like I told you already. The next day, they find him. He's gone from the desolate place to a major city, Capernaum, and they run over there. Look at verse 24. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there in the desolate place, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum, Seeking Jesus. Oh, this is good. They're seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said, Rabbi, when did you come here? I love this moment. He just cuts through all the bull. He cuts to the chase. It's almost like he ignores their question because he knows why they're there and what they're really up to. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw the signs. In other words, they saw the sign of, the, of multiplying bread and feeding 20,000, and it was supposed to make them realize, oh my goodness, there's something greater. There's something greater. Mm-mm. Not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. You ate your fill of the loaves. Jesus has no interest in using his power to simply satisfy the earthly cravings that we were already born with. He came to awaken us and clarify and help us know you have a deeper hunger, a greater longing for something this world could never satisfy. And that's what he came to do. And this is the fundamental mistake with the prosperity gospel that you can see on Christian television and that is behind so much of the best-selling Christian books. The name it and claim it, blab it and grab it. The king's kids go first class. That could not be more off the mark than what Jesus came to do. It's frightening. It's fr- but it sells. Those books sell. Those shows are watched because the human heart would love to take Jesus and use Jesus to simply keep me on the same path with the original craving I arrived with from birth. But Jesus is what's going to help me get all this stuff. Jesus never came to help us have private jets and nicer cars and this, that, and the other. The king's kids go first class. No. 
He did not come into this world to help his kids go first class. He came to rescue us from these earthly cravings that drive us towards insanity so often and leave us unsatisfied. What about you? What about you today? Who do you think Jesus is and what do you keep expecting him to do for you? What do you keep expecting him to do for you? And have you been guilty of trying to use Jesus to satisfy the cravings that you were already born with? Or have you tasted something greater, greater, greater that enables you to say no to some of these earthly cravings you were born with? Listen to me. If you're coming to Jesus with your fists clenched around your wish list and your earthly dream of what you think he has to make happen in your life, has to do for you, you're gonna be miserably disappointed when it doesn't happen. Miserably disappointed. You say, well, Brad, how would I know if I'm clutching some wish list or earthly dream versus I'm just praying, right? James 4 says you have not because you ask not. Ask. But here's how you ask. It's not wrong to have earthly desires, to be married or to have kids or to have a different job or to be healed. Please pray all those things. But it's when you begin to clench your fist around those things and it goes from a desire to a demand and you're like, it's your job, Jesus. This is what I want. This is what would satisfy me. This is what would please me. And if you don't do it, you're not good. How would you know the difference between desire and craving demand. Well, let me point you onto a path that can be helpful. Be honest. That's a problem right there. We can be so dishonest with ourselves, but be honest. If that dream or that earthly wish crumbles right in front of you, surely you've had those moments, and if you haven't, they're, they're ahead, they're in your future. That dream or that wish crumbles right before your eyes. How would you react? How would you respond? Would you fall into depression and self-despair and struggle to even move forward? I can't have joy. I can't serve the Lord. Would you lash out at everyone around you intent on fixing blame? Someone has to be blamed for this. Would you be swallowed up by envy when you see anybody else that has what you did not get? And would you doubt God's love and pull back from the people of God and struggle to even read your Bible and pray or worship. If any of those responses are your response to that crumbled dream or wish, it's very likely that you are still living for earthly bread. And your world is all about earthly bread. Paul the Apostle. Paul the Apostle talks about this, and I think it's interesting. This is not in your outline. This is bonus. This happened yesterday. Philippians 3 is the only place where we have Paul in the present tense saying, I'm weeping right now as I tell you this. Philippians 3 is the only place. Go there with me. Philippians chapter 3, verse 18. Because this is not a new problem, you guys, of people 
trying to get God or get a Christian version or a gospel version of just meet my physical and my earthly appetites now. Satisfy me now. Get me the good things of this world now. Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 18. Paul, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears. He says, I'm weeping as I write this. They walk as enemies of the cross. Now look at me. He's not talking about they, they, they hate the idea that Christ died on the cross and that's how you're saved. You have to believe that. Mm-mm. He's talking about people who do not want to take up their cross as they follow him. I don't want it to cost me. I don't want it to cost me anything. They're enemies of the cross. Their end is destruction. Here it is. Their God is their belly. Some of your translations say appetite. It's still earthly. It's still right here, right here, right here. And they glory in their shame with minds set where? On earthly things. With minds set on earthly things. People are not against an all-powerful king to rule over them as long as they can tell him what to do with that power. Help me get stuff now. Satisfy my cravings I was born with. Help me get what the world says is it. I don't want it to cost me anything. Minds, and then Paul gives us the answer in verse 20. But our citizenship is where? In heaven. That's supposed to change everything, you guys. That's supposed to change how you respond to what's going on in the country in which you live. When you know, I'm not staying here long. Don't hear me saying I don't vote. Don't hear me saying I don't care. Don't say me, hear me saying I don't write letters. I do all those things. And then I sleep good. I, I don't have to do anything that's hashtag resist or tyranny. I don't have to do any of that. It's like, I'm a citizen of another kingdom and I'm not staying here long. I will not be here long. I'm not home. And so I don't have to get angry. I don't have to go crazy. I don't have to lose sight of the main thing. In fact, you guys, look at church history. Revivals and massive spiritual harvest of people coming to faith in Christ do not happen during easy times when Christians are aligned with everyone else in authority and it's easy. It happens during hard times. This is a great time to be a Christian. It's a great time to be on mission. It's a great time to live for what matters most. It's a great time to have your hope fixed on something outside of this world. Paul says their God is their belly, their appetites, just right here, right now. Number four, Jesus came to give us what we actually need, not what we're constantly craving. Not what we're constantly craving. He came to give us what we actually need. You have a hunger that will never be filled by the things of this world. Anything less than a relationship with Jesus Christ. Which is why Jesus says what he does in John 6, 35. Look at verse 35 in that chapter. I am the bread of life. He doesn't say, I'll tell you where to find bread. He says, I am. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me, 
See, now as he's talking to them, when they come to him day two, saying, do it again, do it again. He's not going to do it again. Now he's talking about a greater hunger. And he's saying, I did that so that you'd realize I can do this. This is what you really need. This, and it's interesting, in the Greek, there's two words for life. When he says, I am the bread of life, one word in the Greek is bios. It's where we get our word biology, biosphere, and it means simple existence. If you're here and you've got a pulse, you've got bios. The other word is zoe, a quality of life, real life. We even use it that way in English, right? Have you ever had a great moment where you look at your friend and you say, now this is really living. This is really living. This is really. He says, I am the bread of zoe, I came to give you real life, real life. And when you come to faith in Christ, you discover the difference between simply existing and really living. And it has nothing to do with how much stuff is piled up around you. It has nothing to do with how much of the, quote, good life you're able to get here in this world. Because I hope you've seen it. There are people who have enough power and money. Power and money will do it for you. Enough power and money that they can chase down and lay hold of so many of the things that the world says, this, this will satisfy that craving. This, this will do it, this will do it. And they are people who still are simply existing and wondering, what am I missing? What am I missing? What am I missing? While there are untold numbers of Christians in our country and around the world who lack, lack, so much of what the world says is it, that you'd have to have this to have real life. And yet they have tapped into a satisfaction and a peace and a joy that is not fixed on these things in any way. C.S. Lewis has a great chapter of hope in his book, Mere Christianity. And he describes it well. He says this, most people, if they really learn how to look into their own hearts would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that would offer to give it to you, but they never keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love, first think of some foreign country, first take up some subject that excites us, are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. I'm not speaking of what would ordinarily be called unsuccessful marriage or trips and so on. I am speaking of the best possible ones. There's always something we grasp at in that first moment of longing that just fades away in the reality. Surely you've experienced that when you finally get what you thought would be it and there's just this sense of, what now, what now, what now? The spouse may be a good spouse. The scenery has been excellent. It has turned out to be a good job. But it has evaded us. Every craving that is simply attached to bios, life right here, here in this life, will leave you wanting because you were made for zoe, real life in Christ. Real life 
in Christ. But now here, some of you may be right now be pushing back and saying, but Brad, I am a Christian and I'm still not very satisfied at all. I don't have joy. Let me help you here. It's not just, oh, I prayed a prayer and asked Jesus into my life. If you don't know him, if you don't have intimacy with him, if you don't make time to cultivate intimacy with him, you could still live very much like the rest of the world. You have to know him. You have to turn off the television. You have to turn off talk radio. You have to make time. You have to stop saying, I don't have time. I don't have time. I don't have time. And you have unhurried time in his presence where you literally begin to know him. And he's like your best friend. And you know he loves you and you delight in him. I'm not perfect at all, but one of my favorite things that I see happening to me now, because I've been a Christian since I was seven, and I've been leaning into knowing him, spending unhurried time with him, is how real he is to me all day long. This would be weird. I talk out loud to him all the time, all the time, in the gym, in the car, in the neighborhood. Now, that's not the same as I hear people saying, oh, I don't have a set-aside time where I meet with him. I pray all throughout the day. Please stop. I have a set-aside time, and often I find if you don't, you don't think about him much during the day. It's that set-aside, unhurried time in his presence that causes me to never lose sight of him, and he just stays real. Everything good. I see a red bird on a, on a sparse limb in a tree, and I'm like, oh, God, that's beautiful. Beautiful, thank you for that color. I see a flower. I enjoy music. I have a great conversation with a friend. I'm reading great literature. Everything moves me to connect it back to him. He is real. You have to be living like that to be able to say to the cotton candy pleasures of the the short shelf life twinkie pleasures of this world, nah, nah. See, some of you are still so craving and you say, what is wrong with me? you are not being more satisfied in something better. I'm scooting up to the banquet table and I'm having prime rib and asparagus that's lightly grilled with some sea salt, not cooked to mush like my mother did. And I'm, I'm, I'm getting stuff that sticks to my ribs. And then it's not as hard. Don't hear me saying I don't struggle with temptation. I do, but not like I would if I was spending no time with him. You have to know him and delight in him and taste and see that he is good. And you more and more begin to experience zoe, 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 that even enables you, one of, one of our favorite things to do, Vicki and I, trust me, I would love to have a bigger, most, more beautiful home. I have a split level home that was built, built 45 years ago. No walk-in closets, no big tub. Just even young people today, we say, most of you wouldn't live in my home. Just, I mean, Young couples just start off, boom, here we are. And you're like, really? It's like even when I see, trust me, when I see places, I'm like, I want to go there. Oh, I wish I could go there. I want, I want, I have the same long, our favorite thing to say to each other, it's coming, it's coming. Heaven, heaven, it's real. I hope you know heaven is not this misty place where in some fog we're going to float. And I'll float by you and say, hey, hey, good seeing you again. Oh, yeah. Yeah, just take your chubby little arms and play your harp some more. Oh, God forbid. I would chase myself down a house now. He says there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. We're going to have a restored, pristine 
earth with mountains and rivers and flowers and birds and everything that's here now minus sin. The curse of sin will be lifted and we will be with him. Oh my goodness. I'm gonna see Switzerland. I'm gonna see Maui. I'm gonna taste amazing food. I'm gonna see mind-blowing things and delight in them in the presence of the most glorious being in the universe, my Savior. But it's coming. I don't have to chase it down now. I don't have to be eaten up with envy. It's coming, and it's coming soon. Soon. First John says the things of this world are passing away, passing away, passing away, passing away. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. You realize that puts Christianity and Jesus in a distinctly different category than every other religion. Every other religious leader basically says, I'll show you where to get bread. I'll tell you where to find bread. I'll point you onto a path that will lead you to bread. Christianity is not about a path. It's about a person, and his name is Jesus. He didn't say, I'll give you bread. He said, I am the bread of life. And when you have him, oh, there's a hunger on a deeper level that you didn't know was the real deal that is the real deal that begins to be satisfied. And a thirst that begins to be quenched that enables you to live loose to the things of this world and to live radically different. Only Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Come to me. I'll give it to you. Because you cannot achieve this. You have to receive this by faith. We're very, you realize we're hardwired for achieving. Tell me what to do and I'll do it. And we're very uncomfortable with receiving. That's why verse 28, the crowd asked the same question that so often we're asking. Look at John 6, 28. Then they said to him, what must we, say it, what must we do? What must we do to work the works of God? And Jesus said to them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. You can't do it. You have to believe by faith in the one who has done it for you. He's done it for you. He's done it for you. He's done it for you. And you have, Ecclesiastes says, eternity in your heart. You have a hunger for something this world can never fill. It's Jesus you're looking for. And if you're a Christian and you're still craving and very unsatisfied with where you are, it's more Jesus that you need. Way more. John the Baptist in John 3.36 said, He must increase, I must increase. Needs less of me and more of him, less of me and more of him, less of me and more of him. So unbeliever, if you're here or you're listening online, put your faith in Jesus. Until you do, you will keep simply existing. Bios. You were made for Zoe. Zoe. And Zoe is only found in Jesus. Jesus. He'll give you real life. Real life. Now Christians, listen to me. I know the world has got increasingly hostile towards the gospel. There's hostility like out there like we haven't seen before. Here's what I want you to get a hold of. There's something else that's still out there that I don't want you to miss. Yes, hostility. Guess what else? Hunger. Hunger. 
do you realize people are still people and the more that secularism and materialism takes over, it's throwing people onto a path of emptiness where they live as if there's nothing but this world. And as they're on that path of emptiness, you guys, there's an increasing hunger. I know they look hostile sometimes. You're gonna have to be willing to risk their hostility to discover the quiet hunger that is still there. When they throw up some of their bristling defense mechanisms, there could still be a hunger that is there. When you know him, you're willing to risk. Push past the hostility. Don't be hostile back. Don't revile back. Smile. Love them. And still talk. This is not a time to shut down and say, oh, I don't want to talk about Jesus right now. Certainly don't want to talk about the gospel right now. Oh, folks, now. Yes. 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 The more our world takes over with secularism and materialism and naturalism, the human heart that's hungering for Zoe is going to just be even more hungry because they're not getting it. We have the bread they're looking for. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. Oh, God, thank you for your word. Thank you for giving us not just Jesus, but clarifying for us who he is and what he came to do. Oh, Lord, I pray that you'd stir every believer, child of God here today to set aside time to know him better and to taste and see that he's good and to head into our day satisfied and tapping into a greater, greater satisfaction that enables us to say no to the simple craving of this world we were born with. Use us for your glory. Oh God, may we not forget the hunger. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.